The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's take our Bibles, and if you'll open to Matthew chapter 16, verse number 18, I want to call your attention once again to this foundational verse that we have in Scripture on church perpetuity. Jesus said here in this passage, And I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this evening as we continue our study of church history, we do have this sure guarantee from God's Word that there has been a New Testament church, a true New Testament church in the world since Christ originally founded it. And we've maintained throughout our study that uh, the church has never fully apostatized from the core essential doctrines of the faith that make it a true church. And we maintain that the church never needed reformation, it never needed restoration, that Christ and the apostles gave it its doctrines, and we find this in repeated promises throughout the New Testament, that the church would be here in every generation since its founding. And we also affirm that it will continue to exist until Christ comes again to take it out of the world. Now, I know that uh, many times we, we become discouraged and we're dismayed at the lack of doctrinal teaching, true teaching in denominational churches. Uh, we are concerned about that, but that's not really our chief concern. What we're most concerned about is what's happening in our Baptist churches that just seem to be going further and further away from the truth. And this is one of the things that many Baptist people have strayed away from, the very doctrines that we're talking about here tonight are this doctrine, which is the perpetuity of the Lord's church. Now, we do need to be reminded of this, that, that Christ fulfills his promises. It's always true. And we, we actually may not be living in the most serious time, because there were times in the past when the church was very difficult to find. It was hard to become a member of it because there was just so much persecution, so much that was going on. And so um, through all of that, the church still survived. And so we may not be going through the worst of times right now, and we can take some comfort in this, that looking back through history and seeing all that the church has gone through, that Christ preserved it exactly as he said that he would. Now, we know that today in other places of the world there, there is much persecution, and let the, let the, yet the church still goes on in those places. So as we look at this, one of the difficulties that we have in tracing the true church through history is that constant persecution that it's under. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to write histories and difficult to keep records if you're on the move all the time, trying to keep from being killed. And many times when uh, churches were found out, their records were destroyed. And so we, ha we really do have to ask the question, well, how are we to believe or can we believe that they, these true churches were actually here when there are so few of those records that exist? Well, there was a, for a man in our former church a few years ago, and uh, he had a record that was supposedly produced by a Baptist church that showed a chain-link succession all the way back to the time of Christ. 
Now, I, I don't personally believe that there's any such record that exists. And it was clear by looking at the record that he had that there had been a great deal of liberty that had been taken in accounting for those churches so that you didn't really have any way of knowing if there was really, uh, if all these churches were actually connected or even if they were, that there wasn't some church along that line that was guilty of some rank heresy. We just don't know that. But I don't think that we really do need to know that. I mean, I, I accept the existence of the church in every age and the perpetuity of it because I believe the Bible, not because I believe history. Uh, the Bible tells us this. But having said that, there are historical records. And we took a look at that last Sunday night, how that those who were enemies of Baptist in many cases have written some true histories about us and they affirm, and I'm talking about people that have a, that could have an axe to grind and certainly did in many cases have an axe to grind against the doctrines of the Baptist church and these people that were known by these different names who held to the doctrines and yet they admit that there were people who believe like Baptists do today all the way back to the time of Christ. And so the link that we have doesn't really have to be a chain link. It only has to be a doctrinal link. So I, I just need to know that what I'm teaching you is the same thing that Christ and the apostles taught, and it's the same thing that was being taught by the churches throughout the centuries. And so that's how we know that we're in the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at the history that we do have. And as I said, the assurance of our faith is more a, a biblical thing than it is a historical thing. But nonetheless, we do find that history supports our faith. Now, the history then of the church begins in the first century. And you would expect that, I think, it begins in the first century because it began with Christ and the apostles. So the very first age that we want to talk about is that time period, which is called the apostolic age. And we'll have some different names for these different periods of history, but this is the apostolic age because the church began with Jesus Christ. Now, there is a question that's often asked about, in the New Testament, where did the church actually come into existence? Well, we believe that it began when Christ called out his apostles. Now, Matthew chapter 10 is one of those uh, scriptures that we have, and it records Jesus calling out his apostles. And in Matthew, we also find that there is a, the word church is used there, and that's the New Testament word. The Greek word is ekklesia, which means a called out assembly. And we covered that word many months ago when we first started this series, and we noted that this Greek word had a common everyday usage, that it always meant the same as it always meant that what Christ and the apostles did not do is come up with some kind of a new definition of this Greek word that was now translated as church. So it never was a, a, a non-assembling assembly. It was never a mystical, universal uh, sense of this word that was used, but rather we're talking about people that can assemble together. And uh, interestingly, in that passage that we looked at, I think it was last week in Hebrews chapter 12, that even when the church is in prospect, when you see that in heaven, there in Hebrews 12, it does show us that there are people that are actually assembling together. And so in the New Testament, when Christ began the church, he chose out these 12 apostles. Eleven of them were true apostles. One of them, as you know, was a traitor and proved not to be a true part of the church. 
And in Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20, this is what we're told. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So that tells us what is it that what that first church was, that it is built upon the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Now, and ju- just to let you know that when you see the word prophet, the prophets in those verses, that we're not talking there about Old Testament prophets, but we're talking about prophets in the New Testament era that were given revelation from God. And so we're talking about people that, uh, in this first church, that uh, may not have been apostles like James, now, not James, the son of Deb- Zebedee, or James, the son of Alphaeus, but we're talking here about James, who was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He wasn't an apostle, but he was in the first church, and actually James, of course, became the senior pastor of that first church in Jerusalem. We're also talking, when we talk about prophets, we're, we're speaking of Luke and of Mark, men like them who wrote gospel accounts. And then also Luke, of course, wrote the book of Acts. Now, we understand what the Scripture means when it talks about the apostles. Uh, that We're okay with that. And so these prophets then are New Testament prophets, and, and these were teaching foundational truths that were delivered by Christ and the Holy Spirit. And it's to those truths that these men taught that we ascribe. So the church in the first century are those who are converted to Christ, Called out by Christ, first of all, the apostles, and then people who are converted under their ministry. Now, in speaking of that first church, we do have to be aware of two very important events. The first of those is Pentecost. And Pentecost was the empowerment of the church. Uh, Pentecost is not the beginning of the church, as we're so often told, but rather the church existed before Pentecost... And it began, as I said, with the calling of the apostles. Uh, Before Christ left the world, he told them, those 12 apostles, said, I want you to wait because the Holy Spirit is going to come. I'm going to send him to you. In John 16, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come... He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So there is instruction uh, to the apostles that the Holy Spirit would come. And then when Jesus ascended into heaven, he left this word with them. That's in Acts 1 verse number 8. He said, but ye shall receive power... After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And so what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came like Jesus promised, and the church was empowered, empowered for evangelism, empowered for the instruction of the word. Now, that wasn't the beginning of the church because there were already 120 members that were assembled together waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. And you can read that first chapter of Acts and you can see how they were already functioning as a church, but what they needed, they didn't yet have. 
And that was the power of the Spirit to come upon them. And then when he came, the power that they needed was granted. And that power was not a fluke. Because you take those 120 disciples that are originally there, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, soon that small group grew to 20,000 or more, and they became the first church that was in Jerusalem. Now, many miracles were done. Many things were done in order for the credentialing of the church. And so if you wonder why in the book of Acts, why do we find tongues there? And why do we find miracles that are done by the apostles? Here's the reason. That was the Holy Spirit credentialing the church, telling people, these men are speaking the truth. These men have the power of God behind them. And that power changed the lives of literally thousands of people. And as I said, it validated the apostles' ministry. So that's the first important event that happened to the church in the first century. And the second one is the dispersion. The dispersion. And this is the transition of the church. In the middle to the latter part of that first century, there was a time of transition. Now, who were the apostles preaching to at first? Well, we know that they were preaching to the Jewish people. Most of their converts, almost all of them, were Jews or Jewish proselytes. And so what you had in the very beginning was a predominantly Jewish church. Peter was the dominant disciple at that time, and he was the chief minister to the Jewish people. As you look in other parts of Scripture, you'll find that he's called the, the uh, apostle of the circumcision. That means that he's the apostle to the Jewish people. But then there was something that happened at this time. And I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. And Acts is the history of the church in the first century. And while you're turning there, I'll just tell you that one of the things that I really love about the Bible program that I use is that it has readings from the book of Acts every day of the year. So by the time you finish that entire program, you've read through Acts at least ten times. And so you'll be, in just a year's time, you'll become very familiar with the text in the book of Acts. But here, here in, uh, in the book of Acts, in the 8th chapter, we find a new person, a very important person in Scripture. Look at verse number 1, Acts 8, verse number 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So it starts out, it says, Saul was consenting unto his death. Now, what the death that he was consenting to was the death of Stephen. And we first get an introduction to Saul in chapter 7 at the end. If you'll just look back in seven, uh, chapter 7 at verse number 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. That is, stoned Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And then we go into chapter 8. We see that Paul consented to Stephen's death. And then look what happens in verse number 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Now, you might not know this, but God was using Saul before he was ever converted. 
Saul came and he began to persecute the church and that persecution drove Christians out of Jerusalem and dispersed them all throughout the region. And so the people there that were in Jerusalem pushed out out of Jerusalem and they started to reach other people that weren't Jews. There we see that Philip went to the Samaritans. Later in the same chapter, chapter 8, you know the story of how he met the Ethiopian eunuch and he was saved and he baptized him. So a transition is starting to happen here. Now actually, the main person in the transition that really got it started was the Apostle Peter. And that's when he was told to go to Caesarea to preach to the Gentile centurion Cornelius. And when he preached to him, the Holy Spirit fell on him and his family and the Holy Spirit did to them what the Jews, what he did to the Jews at Pentecost. And so this great transition of the church had begun. And that transition is from a predominantly Jewish church to a predominantly Gentile church. And as you know, uh, Paul, when he was converted, he became the apostle to the Gentiles. So what happened during this time? Well, this is also the time that the center of Christianity moved out of Jerusalem and then began to be positioned in the church of Antioch in Syria. Paul was sent out from the Antiochian church as a missionary. And although it's true that uh, Paul preached to the Jews first, he always went to the Jewish synagogues first and preached there, yet it was almost always Gentiles that believed the gospel. Very few of the Jews believed. And so Paul began to start churches in all these different places of the Roman Empire, uh, he was the first to preach the gospel in Europe. He traveled into Macedonia and began a church at Philippi and at Corinth. But that wasn't Paul's biggest aspiration. Not just to preach in several different cities around the Roman Empire, but what Paul really wanted to do more than anything, he wanted to go to Rome. Now let's take a look at that for just a few minutes. God was preparing the world for this great gospel transition. And actually, God's preparation started long before the church ever came into existence, long before Christ came, 300 years before Christ came. God was already preparing the world, and he did that when Alexander the Great established his empire and conquered the world. Because what Alexander did was to give the world a common language. Now, Alexander didn't know this. He didn't know that God was using him. But God used him to give the world a common language. That was the Greek language. After Alexander conquered all of these territories, Greek became the common language of the people. And so uh, that, that common language helped to facilitate the spread, the rapid spread of the gospel. And then along came Rome. And Rome had all of its many public works. And Rome actually helped spread the gospel. Rome gave the world the first interstate highways. Now, you, you might have thought that that was Eisenhower in the 1950s, but uh, Rome actually beat Eisenhower by about 2,000 years because he gave the empire the Appian Way and the Ignatian Way, and so he united the empire with a good system of roads, good safe roads, and that helped to spread the gospel. So you have this common language, you have quality roads, and those become the keys to the spread of the gospel. And then, of course, there is another one, that another thing that's very important. It's not just good roads, it's not just good, uh, just a common language between people. You need something else. You need somebody to take the gospel. 
And so you had good, faithful preachers, good, faithful missionaries, and good, faithful, ordinary members of churches that were willing to take the gospel to the different places that they went. They obeyed the commission that God gave, and they preached the message. But then going back to Paul, God called him to be the one who who was the big push in this, or the transition of the church from a Jewish one to a Gentile one. In Acts chapter 9, Paul was converted... And then we read in the next few chapters of Acts uh, how that he uh, struggled to be accepted by the other apostles. And then we get into the missionary journeys that he went on. And then finally we come to Paul's journey to Rome. Now I'd like you to, since you're in Acts, turn to Acts 23 in verse number 11. And this is when Paul was in Jerusalem and he had been accused by the Jews of taking a Gentile into the temple. And he was about to be torn to death, torn in part by the crowd, and Roman soldiers came and rescued him. And then Paul said, well, what I'd like to do, I'd like to address the crowd. And so he turned around to speak to them, and when he talked to them, things only got worse. And so the Roman army had to grab him out of there. Now, in verse 11, chapter 23, this is the night following this. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said... Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Now keep that scripture in mind and go to the 26th chapter. And in chapter 26, we find Paul before King Agrippa. Now previously, Paul had appeared before Festus, and uh, he had asked Festus to send him to Caesar for judgment. Now notice this conversation between Agrippa and Festus. This is after Paul had given his testimony to Agrippa. And in verse number 32, Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Now do you understand what that's saying? It's saying that there is no reason for Paul to appeal to Caesar. He didn't really need to do that because they would have let him go upon hearing his defense. Now, did you ever wonder why that Paul appealed to Caesar when certainly God could have spoken to him on that same night that he came to him and said, you're going to preach it at Rome or whatever? He could have also said, but you don't have to worry about this because they're going to let you go. Uh, you don't have to worry about making any kind of appeals because they're going to let you go. But instead, Paul appealed to Caesar. Now, now the strange thing about this is, is that there were no missionary funds that were used to send Paul to Rome. But rather, the Romans actually paid for the greatest missionary to come to Rome to begin to preach. You think God's not in control of things? God knows exactly what he's doing. And so Paul wanted to go there, and it was his great aspiration to be there because it was for the transition. Rome was the hub of the empire. Rome had people coming in and out of the city from all over the world. And so what Paul wanted to do was to get to Rome because that afforded him the best opportunity that he could ever have to preach to a diversified group of people. And so he could preach the gospel there and people going out of Rome would take it to the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire. And that's what they did. People were converted and they went out from Rome. Now what Rome wanted to do, Rome wanted to exterminate Christians, but what they actually did was to pay for the guy to come to Rome who made it a breeding ground for these pests that they were trying to get rid of. And it wasn't long 
before Christians were everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. Christianity was in Europe. Christianity got into England, to Scotland, into Ireland. And it was because that God said, Paul, I need you in Rome. And so Paul appealed to Caesar when he really didn't have to. Now, when he was sent to Festus, he knew what he was going to ask for. He, he said, don't send me back to Jerusalem to be tried. I appeal to Caesar. Now, I think that, oh, I know this, that God knew what was going to happen to Jerusalem. I mean, here, things have been predicted. Jesus talked about it. Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And so you can't have the church there in Jerusalem when the city is destroyed because you don't want the church to be destroyed. Churches have to be started. The gospel has to be preached. The church has to be perpetuated. God's promise has to be kept. And so the church can't go down with the destruction of Jerusalem. So God pulled it out of there and gave away for it to get to these other places in the empire. The transition has to happen in order to keep the church alive. And so it happened. Uh, the common language, the good roads, willing people who would die for the gospel, and then unwilling, an unwilling, unwitting Roman Empire helped all of that to happen. And that's why we have the church today all over the world. And so the apostles began in a Jewish church, but it was transitioned to a Gentile church. Now they lived in that first century, the Apostle John was the last one to die. That was about between 90 and 96 A.D. And uh, all of the apostles except John lived or died a martyr's death. And so right there in that first century, one of the greatest principles of the church was born. And I put this on your listening sheet tonight because it's something to remember. And that is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That principle was born all the way back in the first century. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more that they killed, the seeds keep spreading and more people come to Christ. So now then, we find at the end of the first century that the church has gone into Syria. The church is there in Antioch, and that's where the disciples were first called Christians. At that time, the church was in modern-day Turkey, and it was in Greece and Italy and in Spain and in France, and had gone all the way up and pushed into Britain. To the east, you found the church in Persia and as far east as India. To the west, it's in northern Africa. And remember Philip preaching to that Ethiopian? Now the church is also in Ethiopia. And so you have it going to the far reaches of the empire. And who would ever guess? Who would ever guess that an unneeded appeal to Caesar would accomplish so much? But that's the way that God works. God knows the links. He knows what has to be maintained. He knows what has to happen. And we look at random events. That may be the way that we look at it. We don't see any connection to them. But God knows exactly how all these things are going to fit together and make his church survive. So this is what's happening in the early years. In the beginning, there was a true church. There was only one church at that time, and there still is only one church. Uh, it's the church that Christ started, and it was on the move, but constantly under attack. Now, those acts of divine providence that God had put into place, that kept it alive, but the church was under persecution. The Romans and the Jews and others were persecuting. But persecution is not really the most serious thing that happens to the church. 
That's not the most serious affront or attack against the church. Now, Satan is always going to use persecution. But the devil has far more arrows in his quiver than just persecution. So the next thing that we find happening in the first century is heresy. Heresy, which is the bane of the church. So the church was attacked with heresy, and that started very early on. And we see that in the, in the epistles of the New Testament. Now what I want to do tonight as we finish up is to give you an idea of the heresies that came in the first century. And there are three of those. Three main ones. Others are going to come along later, which we'll get into some in the next couple of weeks. But the first heresy that attacked the church was the heresy of Judaism. Now, let's turn over to Acts chapter 15. And the first heresy that we find the church involved in was their desire to hold on to the rituals of Judaism. So the first heresy that the church has was that if we have to accept Gentiles into the church then those Gentiles must first become Jews. Well, how would they become Jews? Now, of course, they can't become ethnically Jews, but they can become in, come into the Jewish religion. And so here's the way they said, this is what you have to do. The Gentiles must become Jews, and the way to do that is to circumcise them. Circumcise them and make them keep the rituals of Judaism. Make them adopt Jewish customs. And so we find the apostles arguing about that in Acts chapter 15. Verse number 1, it says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now here we're talking about something that's taking place in the Antioch church, that these people from Jerusalem came to Antioch and they began to teach there, if you're going to convert these Gentiles, then they need to be circumcised. Verse number 2 says, When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, if you remember, and we were doing the, the book of Galatians, that these Jewish people that went to Antioch and stirred up all this trouble are known as the Judaizers. These are people that want to convert Gentiles to Judaism. And I always find this to be an interesting passage because I think that they, they really thought that when this thing came out in the open and it began to be debated by the apostles that Peter would come out in their favor. And that's because Peter was prone to fall back into Judaistic ways. And that's one of the things that we saw in that argument that took place between him and Paul in Galatians chapter 2. Now, of course, Peter, being apostle of the Lord, he accepted the correction of Paul. Paul was his brother, and he knew that Paul was right about this. But, but people looked at, these people looked at Peter, and they knew that he was, he was prone to be carried away, as the book of Galatians says, with the dissimulation, or with the hypocrisy of this. But when they get into the debate, we find something happens here, that Peter begins to assert himself against that heresy. So if you look at verse number 7, And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now there he's speaking about going to Cornelius and giving the gospel to him. And verse 8, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God? 
to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now, I think all of you recognize what Peter's doing there. He is asserting justification by faith alone. That circumcising people is not going to help anybody, but we're saved by our faith in Jesus Christ. So the apostles debated that, and they settled this matter between themselves. But that doesn't mean it's the end of the controversy. You go on and you look at Paul as he's ministering to the churches in the New Testament, and you find that his letters are laced with these kinds of struggles about doctrine. Now, Judaism is the heresy of legalism, and it still shows up in churches everywhere today. Now, in this particular case, it's the heresy of of not believing that we're justified by our faith alone. And legalism, or not legalism, but Judaism shows up, or yes, legalism does show up even in Baptist churches. Only our fight here in the Baptist churches is not about our justification because we understand that. We're saved by the grace of God, so we don't argue about that. But what happens is there are Baptist churches that latch on to this legalism in the form of our sanctification. And so they think that the way that a person becomes sanctified in the eyes of God is to keep a list of rules, to keep a bunch of regulations, put a bunch of things in place that people do, and they'll earn their sanctification through doing those things. And that's not to say that it's wrong to have some kind of rules in the church. I'm not saying that. But when you substitute that for sanctification, that's taking away from the Word of God. And so we have that legalism that still shows up in Baptist churches. Now, of course, our argument is no longer about circumcision. We're not arguing today about whether people ought to be circumcised. I mean, maybe in a clinical sense you might want to argue about that, but not in a religious sense, not any longer for us as Gentiles. So circumcision in the Bible now becomes emblematic of any legalistic system. And so when you see circumcision discussed in the New Testament, it's going beyond the clinical, and it's going right there to the heart of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So that's what the Scripture is speaking against, any form of that. Well, then there was a second heresy that appears in the first century, and that is the heresy of paganism. And you can imagine why that's a problem. Uh, Obviously, pure pagans did not, and they would not have very much influence over Christians, But being in the Roman Empire where paganism was the thing, there was a problem with some converts who wanted to hold on to some of their paganistic practices. Now, Paul fought hard against that. You read about it in the book of Corinthians, the worldliness that existed in the Corinthian church, the things that went on with paganistic practices. One of the most horrific things that they did was with their temple prostitutes. I mean, can you even imagine that? That they thought this was a righteous thing, a holy thing to do. To be, and, and it was honoring to God to go to the temple and to have relations with prostitutes. Paul was fighting against that, that immorality in the Corinthian church. And then comes along this controversy of eating meats that have been offered to idols. Now some of the Christians thought that there was still some power that was in those idols or the power, the idol had some kind of power. But Paul said to them, those things are just dumb idols. They have no power at all. An idol is nothing in the world, is what Paul told them. Now hold on to that information because as we go through our study, the thing about idols 
will be very important in the history of the early church. Now, thirdly, the third heresy that occurs in that first century is Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is the great admixture of Christianity, paganism, Judaism, and mysticism. Now, Gnosticism is, a, is really a disease. It's one of those gifts that keeps on giving because that one's still alive and well in churches today. Gnosticism wants to incorporate philosophy into faith. Gnosticism is actually the culprit in many of the mystical views of the church. It's where we actually got the invisible church theory that comes through Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the father of monasticism. And that's where a person goes off and lives by himself like a hermit in some otherworldly kind of existence. This is a way that they thought that they could get closer to God. That's part of Gnosticism. This is the heresy that we find in 1 John when there was just so much aberrant theology about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that still exists today. I talked about that this morning. Gnosticism shows up in Mormonism and with the JWs and the cults. They're all involved in these forms of Gnosticism. And so you take these things, you mix, you mix these four things together. You take Christianity and you take paganism and you take Judaism and you take mysticism. And now what you have is a potion for the Roman Catholic Church. Catholicism is Judaism with its priesthood. It's paganism with its idols. It's mysticism with the hocus-pocus of the mass and the candles and the prayers for the dead and all of that. It's ritualism with its sacraments. But understand something. Catholicism wasn't born in the first century. But you have the potion here. You, you take all of that and you mix it together and you let it simmer for about 300 years and you end up with the greatest enemy of the church that has ever been concocted. Satan did his best work, or his worst work, depending on the way that you look at that, when Catholicism was born. So you see that the true church didn't have those kinds of errors. The apostles were always fighting against everything that makes up the Roman Catholic Church today. The apostles fought all the individual heresies when they were individual heresies, Whenever they cropped up, the apostles were, were defending against those. But finally, all of these lies converge and they become one monolithic entity under Constantine in the 4th century. And so in that 1st century, you find a church that's spread all over the empire. It's beset by many different problems. The seven churches of Asia, uh, what we read about in Revelation, show us that, and that's a testimony to problems that are cropping up. Now you get women preachers that are already showing up in the first century. And you've got, you've got a graded ministry. And we'll talk a great deal about that a little bit later on. You have the extreme worldliness that works its way into the church. And you have all of these doctrinal errors. But in the midst of the errors, in the midst of the persecution, all of that's going on, there are still churches that held to the truth. They were still holding on to the core essential doctrines. Now at times... They were in danger of losing their status. And God had to correct them. We see Paul doing that in the New Testament epistles. We see that again, as I said, in the seven churches of Asia. God had to correct them. But as long as they held on to the core doctrines, which they did, they preserved the church for another generation, and then for another century, and then for another millennium, 
until we have the church today. Now, as we go through our study here, we're going to find these doctrinal errors cropping up. And when the errors became too great, now you have churches that turn loose of the essentials, and then you have apostate churches, and then they all get stewed together, mixed in together, and then out comes what I called a few weeks ago the golden calf. Finally, we're going to have Roman Catholicism after about 300 or so years. So we begin right here in the first century and the establishment of the church. It's the apostolic age. First, it's a Jewish church. Then it transitions into a a Gentile church. In that first century, you see growth, rapid expansion of the gospel and of the church being going everywhere. And that's because, again, people were so faithful to do what God told them to do. They were faithful to the commission that God gave. And then by the end of the first century, you find it present in every corner of the Roman Empire. One of the most interesting things that, uh, that I see in this is when you think about the gospel in, in Britain, it appeared there in Wales as early as 63 AD. And you wonder, well, how did it get there? How did the gospel by 63 AD get all the way into Wales? Well, do you remember the people that Paul witnessed to in Caesar's household? Do you remember slaves that he talked to? Do you remember Roman centurions that he talked to? And so how did the gospel get there? Well, those soldiers get sent to defend the empire in different places, and with them they took the gospel of Christ, and slaves go with them to take care of them, and with them go the gospel of Christ. So we find the church in Britain all the way up there in 63 A.D. And in a few weeks we're going to talk about somebody that you're familiar with. Uh, We'll be getting close to uh, March the 17th. And what happens on March the 17th? It's what? St. Patrick's Day. And we're going to talk a little bit about Patrick and how that Patrick was not a Roman Catholic. We'll talk about that. That comes up in a few weeks. But you have all these things that are going on and the church survives it all. The trials and the tribulations that it goes through here are, are just a precursor to things that's going to happen throughout the centuries. And so we find that the attacks of Satan grow even more vociferous. But what does the scripture say? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so, folks, here we are, still fighting, still surviving, still going on, still preaching the gospel, because Jesus said that's what's going to happen. There will be a true church. So next week we'll come back and we'll look at some more history. And we're going to move into the second century. And we're going to look at who's there, what groups are there, what's being taught, what are doctrines that are going on. It takes us a couple weeks to get through that one, but we'll start that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've been able to spend together. Uh, We thank you so much, Lord, for your church. We thank you that you put us in a place where we can hear the truth of the word, where we can know that we're following the same doctrines that Jesus and the apostles taught. We're just so grateful that we could be here to hear about this and just to learn about this faith that we have and how you have miraculously preserved your church through all of these years. Lord, uh, thank you for your people that are here tonight. Bless us. We uh, ask you to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.